Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a very contemporary topic today, that's going to require a lot of investigation, understanding, a lot of research to gain better understanding as to what to do about this challenge that's in front of us. Today's guest is really at the leading edge of some of this for multiple reasons. And Julius Area um, is somebody that actually, I think, has a, a medical license in cardiology and is now really getting involved in trying to better understand how to unpack some of the symptoms related to long COVID, which is something we're going to be talking a little bit about today. Today's guest is, I I really applaud her courageousness and vulnerability in trying to address this issue in a way that is not looking at, you know, just treating symptoms, but really trying to get to a better diagnosis in order for us to truly better understand how to treat this. So Dr. Alice Perlowski is our guest today, and I think we're going to learn a lot today about the complexities related to not only COVID in general, but some of the persisting symptoms related to this condition. So Alice, thank you so, so much for spending a little bit of time with us today. And for the listeners today, uh, the Brain Mastery Podcast is primarily a lot of medical providers that are out there in the space trying to help people that have more post-acute chronic conditions like post-concussion syndrome, challenges following stroke or any kind of illness. For people that are listening today, would you mind giving just a little bit more background as to what you know brings you into this work and what some of your history is, just to give them a little bit better contextual understanding? Sure. So I developed COVID-19 in March 2020, uh, very early in the pandemic. At the time, I didn't really even realize I had COVID. It started out as kind of a upper respiratory type infection and then progressed quite quickly after about a week. And the way I knew I had COVID was I actually had a, uh, an email sent to me by Mass General where I trained and they were having a grand rounds on COVID-19. And when they started describing the symptoms, I knew I had it. So I had a pretty severe course. I had low oxygen levels. I developed confusion quite quickly. Mm. Uh, I believe I was uh, delirious. I had uh, some hallucinations uh, and delusions that were happening. Um, I was living on my own. So I really didn't realize what was happening. Now, looking back, it's pretty frightening. But I was very ill for about one year in and out of the hospital for low oxygen levels. I had two abdominal surgeries within seven weeks of each other, my appendix and gallbladder. COVID really attacked my whole body. In the summer of 2020, I 
cleared enough neurologically to realize that I was extremely impaired, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. When you're delirious like that, you just don't know you are until you be kind of emerged from the cloud. And I started emerging in the summer of 2020, saw a neurologist, clearly there were issues, and then had my brain MRI'd and I had multiple white matter lesions all over the brain. So I knew that obviously I had brain damage from COVID. I ended up being seen at Mayo Clinic um, to try to get opinions about it. And at the time, it was so new that there was nothing really they can offer. It didn't look like multiple sclerosis. It didn't look like anything that could be treated urgently. So uh, I felt pretty lonely and pretty, I, I was in despair basically, when I realized that I had brain damage from this virus. And I started a Facebook group called the COVID Brain Club because I wanted to see if there was anybody else out there who were having similar issues. And lo and behold, the club was formed and there were many other people who were joining. So that's how I became very interested and involved in um, long COVID and in advocacy and particularly focusing on the neurological aspects. Yeah. Wow. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that with our audience today, because this is something that is obviously still a relatively new condition that we're all trying to better understand. And Here you are two years into this, you know, my goodness, so much to say and, but also to reflect on. And I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for sharing that because I'm sure there's many people out there that will listen to this, that will maybe experiencing similar challenges. And with that, what was it that led you to try to connect others and to try to serve? Like maybe call a little bit to your experience so that people can understand, you know, What was it that led you to, you know what, I need to do something about this. I need to get a group together. I need to, what was it about that? I think because it's just pretty much my nature. I mean, I've been a a go-getter from kind of day one. I was very successful in my career. I had multiple academic appointments and I have a trouble sitting still and I have trouble accepting the norm That's just something that is ingrained in me. And I didn't even realize it until this experience. I mean, even going through that first year, I was fighting for my life. It was a day-to-day struggle. And I think it's just my nature to question things that are going on. And I started to question how long COVID and post-COVID injuries were being addressed or being not addressed. And in 2020, Mm -hmm. people didn't even know what long COVID was. People didn't know uh, that someone could be sick from COVID for greater than 14 days. And so there was um, an obvious disconnect in the medical community's knowledge about what post-COVID was and what was actually happening on the ground. So one of the inspirations uh, was to try to create a, a small community where we could discuss these things and discuss what was happening in our brains. I think discussing brain injury and um, some of the psychological things that happen in response to, or, or as a result, I should say, of brain injury is a very sensitive topic. 
So I felt as though I needed to create a, a more intimate community where it was very heavily screened for patients yeah. who actually were having brain issues. I didn't want people coming in to kind of lurk. I wanted people to be comfortable talking about these very serious and, and somewhat embarrassing issues. So that was basically the inspiration. For I love me it. To form this. Yeah. I love it. No, thank you for doing that. And it's something that gives me great hope. Uh, it, you know, the when it makes me think about, you know, when people are faced with the challenge, we really get to understand more about who we are at our worst. And, you know, I think about, you know, sharing with you because you're so vulnerable. You know, I've gone through some health complications myself. And um, I remember when it happened, um, I was fortunate I had my family around. But I remember, well, we've talked a few times, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty extroverted and talkative and excitable. And my wife, I remember I was diagnosed with cancer and my wife, I remember here I am 37 years old, just right out of the left field. I'm just kind of like, what the heck? And I was so quiet. <laughs> my wife's like, why are you quiet? I said, I'm really thinking. <laughs> and, and, you, you know, fortunately in the, in the medical system, I wonder what part of it, because you are naturally somebody who cares for people, you know, mm -hmm. that is who you are, you know, and I'm wondering what part of that nature led you to medicine. I'm sure it's this part of who you are, but also as you think about this work, you immediately reached out to try to serve and help and to connect. Because when I thought about my cancer journey, that was one of the things there's so many groups out there. There's so much support. There's so much help seemingly almost everywhere. But when we think about even outside of, you know, COVID related brain injury, just brain injury in general, there's very little support out there. So, you know, big time kudos to you for taking the bull by the horns and doing something and doing something that could be done as privately as possible. So just thank you again. Thank you for doing that. It's been very rewarding for me as well. So, and it, and it kept me going through a long period of time where I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. So it was mm -hmm. kind of therapy for me as well, because right. as you say, my nature is to help other people. And when I got sick, that was it. I had to leave practice. I was obviously not in any state to be seeing patients, you know, with a pretty significant brain injury. So at least I felt like I was doing something. So honestly, it's been as therapeutic for me as probably the other way around for the members. So cool. So now, I mean, here you are, you know, you and I have had a few conversations and my colleague, Sean, and we're talking about okay, now that we know we're starting to learn a little bit more about this condition, we're trying to better understand how to safely support people, right? You know, the peer support is massive. Community is so important and being able to feel safe communicating is so important. But when you think about where you're at now and what the future may hold, what are you hoping to, over the next few months and maybe hopefully not years, what do we hope to see the future start to look like around this work? Yeah, so I think it's a very critical time now. Um, the data is starting to roll in quickly about what this neurological injury actually is. We spent a lot of 2020 trying to convince people that we were really sick. And then in, in 2021, 
we were still kind of trying to define what was going on with, with people. And now we have data coming in. We have uh, autopsy data from mm-hmm. people who unfortunately didn't survive, but we have autopsy specimens of their brains. We can see the damage that's occurred as a result of the virus. And then we also have uh, more recently some mouse model data where they actually gave mice a respiratory infection and the mice ended up with significant brain injury. So I think there was a huge disconnect for a while between how could a respiratory illness cause all these other things to happen in the body. And I think in kind of 2021, we started making the connection between this being more of a vascular illness, this being more of a a platelet activating or clotting illness. And so I think people started realizing why this affects people in basically every organ system in some severe cases. So what I hope happens is that we continue to get more information about exactly what's happened in our brains. Right now, it seems potentially like either the virus did what I call a hit and run issue when the virus went into the brain, caused a lot of damage and somehow left because when they're looking at brains and and spinal fluid, they're not finding actual virus particles or very little In some studies they do, but in a lot of studies they don't. So the thinking is, is that the virus is triggering some um, dysregulated immune response um, and triggering clotting cascades and things like that in the brain as well. And uh, that's what's causing all the brain damage. So I want more of an acknowledgement that this is serious brain injury. This is... I think very similar to someone who's either been had a traumatic injury to their brain uh, from an accident or or sports or from someone who had chemotherapy and experienced injury to the brain like that. Uh, There's been a lot of what we call psychologizing of this illness. Like these people have pandemic stress or something like that. This is a, a serious brain injury. And I'd like the medical community to be able to um, recognize that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. When you see a post-COVID patient, to ask them, are you having any cognitive issues? Are you having any personality changes or anything like that? And to kind of delve into that, because it's really more common than I think was initially recognized. Totally. So, you know, and of course, we need treatment trials and we need to investigate things that help people. And at the current time, we just don't have enough funding uh, going into those things, you know, whether it be cognitive therapy, whether it be medication or an intervention, I think that needs to start happening because some people are two years out and there's not a lot in terms of a standardized approach to therapy. No, no. And that's kind of where, you know, our worlds kind of meet is we're trying to better understand, obviously, our background in our organization is really non-invasive neuroplastic cognitive therapy for people with persisting cognitive issues following either an acquired brain injury or traumatic. And, you know, it's one of those things that we're talking about trying to better understand, okay, are there ways that we can support some segment of this population safely? 
to try and help people because some of the, the symptoms that are occurring behaviorally are very similar to what we see in, in chronic uh, concussion, you know, stroke uh, rehabilitation, but even into the illness side that we're talking about around, you know, chemotherapy, cancer chemotherapy, you know, people who've had neurological cancers, people who've had sort of um, bacterial infections that could be in the brain. You know, we've worked in these populations and we're trying to understand are the ways that we can support and help. And that's really how we became connected through some mutual colleagues that we, that we know of. This one might be a little bit, you know, frustrating for you, but I want to lift your voice up. And I think you hinted at it a little bit, and I really want people to listen to this. There's so much debate out there right now around this topic, and we're not going to go into that because that's for other people to talk about around that big topic of vaccination. But when we look at this whole work, I, again, I really want to hear you on this. When you think about this long COVID, when you think about this topic, what's really frustrating you about it, about in general? Outside of your own personal, obviously, struggles, but when we generalize it out in the general public, uh, what's something that really is, is frustrating for you? I think the continuing movement, it seems, to minimize it, to shove it under the rug. I find a lot of mainstream media articles, the ones that are highlighted tend to be about long COVID, tend to be the ones that minimize it or kind of put it into a little package that these people have certain rare risk factors where a person watching it doesn't get an idea of how serious this illness is and also feels as though it can't happen to them. When we talk about an illness and say that, you know, you only, you have to be a smoker and you have to be, you know, have diabetes and you have to be this and you have to be that, a viewer watching it can say, well, I'm really healthy. There's no way that that can happen to me. And that's the mistake we've made for two years with this virus. I am living proof that this virus can really injure somebody who is perfectly healthy with no risk factors. So I think the main frustration I have is the public messaging, both by our public health organizations globally. This isn't just I'm yeah. in the U.S., but, um, you know, it, this is a global problem. The public health organizations are minimizing this illness. They're not talking about this illness as much as they should. And then the mainstream media in turn minimizes the illness. And I think this is something, long COVID is something that needs to be addressed every single time somebody is talking about this virus on TV or in a newspaper or something, because the prevalence of this, um, the U.S. estimate is 30% of all people who get COVID are going to have long symptoms. And then probably between of those people, between one in three and one in four people are going to have neurological problems. And that's including, you know, we're included kids too. So I think the minimization has to stop. The CDC has put out already studies that recovering from COVID is worse than recovering from cancer in terms of quality of life. Mm. So I'm just really 
frustrated when mm-hmm. I continue to see minimization of this illness. I think people have heard of it now, but I don't think most people, unless they have a first degree contact with someone who has suffered, really understand the significance. Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that. And I love, I love the courage that you show in, in tackling this issue because it does require more awareness. And what, what really frustrates me is exactly what you're talking about around minimization, around purely comorbidities, which seems to be out there a lot. And it is a factor. It definitely is a factor, but it's not the factor. And I really struggle with that too, because I think about this in context and go, what happened to compassion? What happened to empathy? What happened to understanding? And from medical professionals too, what happened to that? Where did that go? And, you know, the first rule of medicine is do no harm. Well, to minimize something like this is actually doing harm. So what about that? And that's one of the things I really struggle with. And here you are, you're saying, we don't know yet what is causing all of this, but we want to try to better understand. We have to. So it's been interesting to be a patient and a, a healthcare professional in the situation because you have to realize too, healthcare professionals have basically been at war for two years. I mean, they have put their own lives on the line, their families' lives on the line with this deadly pathogen. And it's created a lot of, I'd say, well, I don't know how to put this, but there's a lot of cognitive bias that's happened with medical professionals. And I think that's a protective mechanism. When I was sick, I had medical professionals looking at me and it seemed as though they had almost a hard time believing someone like me could be so sick. And that's just a way sometimes medical professionals, um, they use it to protect their own sanity. Like we have to do that, right? So we can't let our emotions and things take over when we're dealing with crisis. So I think part of it is that. I think part of it is our healthcare systems were broken before this happened. The healthcare professionals were under a tremendous Mm -hmm. amount of stress. And adding a large population with a chronic disease certainly does not help that situation. And I think the third component is there's been a lack of physician and healthcare provider education on this subject in a formal way. That's something that I know is going to change soon because I know of some some things that are happening to hopefully educate physicians more. But, you know, it's been a while where we haven't had a formal guideline where people can look and educate themselves about this illness. So I think there's been a lot of problems with the medical community, but some of them I can empathize with because it's been a really, really tough run for medical professionals. So I'm hoping that over the next year or so, we get the physician education going and this becomes a topic and an illness that people feel more comfortable discussing. And mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when you think about your work in general, and I mean, it's pretty unique perspective that you, that you bring to this work. Um, I'm just curious, you know, what are some of the influences that you've had along the way that helped you to, to step forward in this way? 
what were maybe one or two of your influences could be, you know, family members, friends could be, you know, important articles along the way, books, whatever it might be. Is there one or two that you might want to share that might give somebody else a, a gleam of insight as to how to maybe be a little bit more courageous <laughs> in their life? Yeah, well, I think I grew up with a disabled brother. So he has a genetic condition called Fragile X, where mm-hmm. mentally handicapped. It runs in my family. So I grew up around disability advocacy. I mean, this is something that my mother has been involved in for, you know, 52 years of her life. And so I think a big inspiration is my brother, who has been dealt a really rough hand of cards, but yet handles it really well. And I think it's kind of similar with this. Um, I think it's easy to say, why did this happen to me? I did everything right. I ate well. I didn't smoke. Mm -hmm. I exercised and look at me. I'm chronically ill now. But I also think we also have to look at some of the positives. I tell people who who have long COVID that you survived. I mean, that's something that I think about like every day. We could have been one of those statistics that didn't make it. And the truth is, is that we did. And so I tell people to give yourself and your body grace for actually getting you through this. And I think most everyone, a lot of people could say, there's been very, very slow improvements over this time. So the body is trying really hard to repair itself. So I think, you know, my biggest inspiration is my brother. I guess the other one to mention is uh, Shelby Hedgecock, who I met through this experience. We connected in 2020. Um, interestingly, she was going on Chris Cuomo and with my journalism experience, I think she had expressed that she was nervous and I, uh, connected with her and gave her some tips about how to speak about this illness, which was Mm -hmm. really, really new at the time Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that the public could understand better. We connected and then she, from her sick bed, started a, a nonprofit organization called Blooming Magnolia. And Shelby, although she's about 15 years younger than me, is really an inspiration. She's very sick as well. She's been very sick. And, you know, she's just kept charging through. And it's been great to connect with her because we kind of bounce things off each other basically every day and just keep trudging through this mess. You know, I think of younger people, it makes me sad. Like, I can't believe they're going to have to live the rest of their lives potentially with symptoms and stuff. And she gives me a lot of strength because I just see how she handles things. So I am the chief medical officer of Blooming Magnolia. And so we have started to help some long COVID patients with their immediate needs. I love it. I think that's so great. And um, that's something I remember when I first heard about it, I just yeah, I just couldn't couldn't get enough of hearing that story because it's so easy, so easy for us to sit on it and to say, oh, maybe somebody could do something about this. Maybe somebody should create an organization. Maybe somebody should do something. But you and Shelby, you know, said, no, we're going to do something. You know, for those of you that are listening, I really encourage you if there's a problem that, you know, isn't able to be, there isn't a good solution in place yet for it, you know, step forward. 
you may be really surprised at how many people you could serve and help by doing that. Yeah, it's something that still I, I really respect about you and Shelby. For people that are out there, maybe there's people listening to this right now. How do people get a hold of you, the organization, and, and your work? Yeah, so you can find us at www.bloomingmagnolia.org. That is our website. And then from there, you can join our network and become involved and also get support from other members of the group. And that's how basically how you can get a hold of us. We are very passionate about addressing the mental health part of this illness Mm -hmm. and not saying that this illness is because of mental health issues. And by the way, even if it was because of mental health issues, I'm disappointed on at how people responded to it because there's no such thing as just depression or just anxiety. I mean, that's something that needs to be addressed as well. But that aside, people who have gone through COVID um, and long COVID have a tremendous amount of PTSD it's very natural to feel anxiety, depression, and we're very passionate about addressing that part of the illness. I think just about everyone going through it is feeling some degree of, of grief and you know missing their previous self. That's something that is spoken a lot where people say they miss the person they used to be. And so we really try to provide an environment where people can get help We are partnered with Cerebral, which is um, an online platform that offers therapy and and psychiatric care. And we also provide in our own network um, weekly meetings where we either have an expert who goes over how to breathing, meditation, Mm -hmm. and even just support groups and things like that, just chatting So we try to provide a nurturing environment for people really struggling. That's wonderful. I mean, thank you for stepping forward in the way that you have and and showing up, right? For people out there, I encourage you to reach out, learn more about the work going on. I'm optimistic, actually. It's easy to be pessimistic today, and there are many reasons to be, but I choose to be optimistic. And the reason is because people like yourself are out there trying to address these challenges that are out there. And especially people with lived experience like yourself. I think it's just wonderful that you're doing what you're doing. And I, you know, I am very excited and optimistic about a lot of the other medical providers that are out there acknowledging that this is a challenge that we need to put resourcing towards to better understand how to help. I look forward to continuing to support you and your work as well. We'll be in touch. So just thanks for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. And the the one last component I didn't mention about Blooming Magnolia that's very important. I am going to create a physician education platform myself to hopefully where we can kind of pass that out to physicians and give them some guidelines as well. That's one of our other passions as well as supporting research efforts. I forgot. I love it. No, that's okay. (laughs) I love it. That's okay. It's okay. It's all good. I I love that you're doing that. I think that's such a great idea because acknowledging that so many physicians just don't have the information. Right. To, to understand they, right. they have no clue. Really blame physicians if they don't have the information. So that's what I really want to to do. If I can kind of 
provide information and anyone out there who needs information or would like to connect with me, if I could provide, if you have a patient and you just are struggling with how to manage that patient, I've had people reach out to me from all walks of my life with patients um, that they have, that they have questions about, and I'm completely fine with helping manage patients. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for adding that. So you know, the information about everything will be in the show notes. So I encourage you to click and to, to learn a little bit more, share this if it had value for you. If you know of somebody that might be struggling with something like this, know that you're not alone. You know, there, there are people out there that want to help. So I encourage you to go out, seek that help, talk about it. Don't hold it all in. And together, I do believe we're going to learn more and we're going to start working towards finding solutions to help. So thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the Bears platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. A training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neurorehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.